0: of John chapter 6 beginning at verse 60. So John chapter 6 beginning at verse 60. Be reading through verse 71 which brings us to the end of chapter 6. The message this evening is part 1. I'm anticipating one more sermon that will take us through the end of chapter 6. In The context Jesus has just spoken of himself as the bread of life. We've spent a number of weeks talking about the different nuances of Jesus claiming to be the bread of life and saying that he is the source of eternal life and that people are to eat his flesh and drink his blood if they are to have eternal life. And then moving to verse 60, it says, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. I think it's true that all of us will admit that we experience hearing things that we don't want to hear. For example, when given a choice between good news and bad news, we prefer to hear good news. And in, an, and in anticipation of hearing really bad news, there, it's very possible that our palms will be sweating, our hearts racing, because bad news is stressful. We don't want to hear it. And sometimes we don't want to hear about things that need to change, especially if they directly involve us. For change requires work, and if we are the ones who need to change, it can be humbling and uncomfortable. And our pride wants to hold on to the idea that we are already all that we should be and don't need to change anything. Pride says, I already know everything. I don't need to be corrected. And if there is any deficiency, it's not my fault. Uh, we, we tend to live in denial about ourselves if it involves hurting our pride. There are also times when we don't like to listen to individuals because we can't understand perhaps what they're saying. We're confused by what we're being told And so we would rather listen to someone or something else. And if what we are hearing we know to be important, we find other ways to get the needed information. A book, a blog, a video, another expert. Otherwise we figure if it's not that important we can just ignore it and move on to other things. We reject what is untrue or what we believe is untrue. We don't choose to listen to lies. It's a waste of time. It's usually destructive. It happens that we are faced with what we know to be truth or highly suspect is truth, but we won't accept the implications. This is the ultimate form of denial. This kind of denial that flies right in the face of the truth seems impossible, and yet it happens regularly. Anyone who has children who has worked in law enforcement or social work can readily see and recognize that people are not born morally good not even morally neutral, nor can man's moral problems always be traced to how he was raised. But man will not face the implications of these obvious truths, because that would mean then that man is morally responsible for his decisions and actions. There's evidence of abortion causing emotional damage to mothers who abort their babies, even to the point of increased suicide rates for those who have had abortions. Many will not accept this because they believe abortion is too important. They don't want to have any reason not to be able to encourage it. For Jesus, his claim to be the eternal word, the Son of God and Messiah, was substantiated by the miraculous signs that he performed. And when Jesus called upon people to believe in him and receive eternal life, there were inevitably several responses from utter rejection to full acceptance. And in the middle, these varying degrees of temporal or partial acceptance. And these responses correspond to the responses that Jesus highlights in the parable of the sower, which is why I read that parable this evening. The parable of the sower is all about the spiritual heart responses to God's word. In that parable, the word is the, is the seed, and the soil on which it falls is the heart. And the first soil is the path, which corresponds to a hard heart. On that soil, the word of God finds no place to penetrate and to sprout, and that stands for an utter rejection, such as we find against Jesus by the religious leaders and their followers. They were the ones who seemed to understand nothing of what Jesus is claiming as the Messiah, who could save them from their sins and give them eternal life. And when Jesus said to work for food that endures to eternal life rather than for earthly bread, remember their thoughts go to, well, what good works does Jesus intend for us to do so that we can earn eternal life for ourselves? They had no understanding of spiritual things. They were the ones who insisted that Jesus needed to prove himself greater than Moses since Jesus only gave them earthly bread while Moses gave their ancestors bread from heaven. They grumbled under their breaths over his claim to be the bread come down from heaven because they knew his parents. And when Jesus called them to eat the living bread from heaven and said that his flesh is this bread, they argued over how Jesus could give them this his flesh to eat. So at every stage, they are unbelieving. Their reaction is to discredit whatever he says. And notice that they don't ever try to discredit his miraculous feeding of the 5,000. They can't refute the evidence of that. Verse 59 tells us that this conversation, where at every turn Jesus claims were ridiculed and discredited, this took place in the synagogue of Capernaum. So these were religious people. Clearly, many were hard, soil listeners who refused to accept the implications of Jesus' miracle that He is God. They should have listened to Him. They should have put their trust in Him for eternal life, but they would not. Nevertheless, there was some measure, as you can recall, of dispute and of dis- uh, and, uh, and debate going on over Jesus' claims, and that would indicate that not all were these hardened pathway soil hearers. Some were rocky soil hearers. Some were thorny soil hearers. The rocky soil of Jesus' parable is is soil that, it, it, it's, it, it's soil where there's just this wisp of soil over hard rock. And the seeds that fall in this soil, they quickly sprout up but then wither away because their roots have no place to go but down into solid rock. They can't penetrate rock. The soil is the heart of a person who has a sudden and superficial interest in spiritual things. He receives it with joy, but because there's no root, that enthusiasm endures only for a little while, and then when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, he immediately falls away. And similarly, the thorny soil here has a heart where the word is received with some interest, but then the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches they act like weeds and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. And I would suggest that some of the religious leaders and congregants of the synagogue there in Capernaum must have fallen into this category of either the rocky soil or the thorny soil because. If they were all pathway soil hearers, there would have been only an immediate and utter rejection of him and his claims. There was some level of interest. There was some level of debate that indicates there was some interaction with what Jesus was saying, even if in the end it proved fruitless. It is particularly a second group of people that are mentioned in our text that fit into this category of rocky soil and thorny soil hearers, they are introduced to us in verse 60 as disciples. I'd point out these are not the 12 disciples. I mean, obviously, the 12 disciples are disciples, but in verse 67, Jesus distinguishes between the 12 and this larger group he calls disciples. This general category of disciples refers to people who followed Jesus with varying degrees of commitment. That they were called disciples indicates that they considered considered themselves to be Jesus' followers um, and him to be their teacher, their master. If you were a disciple in those days, your master was a person that you looked to for wisdom, for spiritual guidance. His teaching and his example were thought to be the path to eternal life. And I've referred to these disciples of Jesus as rocky soil and thorny soil hearers, Because as the so-called disciples continued to interact with Jesus, it became evident that their interest in Jesus was fleeting. As Jesus confronted their unbelief, and as he called them to look to him for for, uh, eternal and spiritual life, verse 66 tells us what ultimately happened, that they turned back and no longer walked with him. They rejected him. They rejected his words. His words bore no lasting spiritual fruit in their lives. Meanwhile, the 12 disciples, minus Judas, showed themselves to be fertile soil listeners. Despite the rejection of Jesus by so many, despite this this exodus by so many, the 12 continued to follow Jesus. And uh, Peter, as their spokesman, gave an amazing profession of their faith in him. So that's kind of a summary of what we have here in this section of verses I've taken as the theme, differing responses to the word, the word here referring to God's word, in particular as it came through Jesus, which is a reminder to us that Jesus is the word that was with God and is God, that when he speaks, he is speaking the very words of God and to receive his words is to receive the words of God and to reject him is to reject God's word. So, the theme comes from the differing responses to Jesus as he proclaims the truth regarding himself and man's need of salvation. And this evening I've developed this theme. Well, I've developed this theme under three points. We're only going to deal this evening with the first of the three, but the first one is the offended. Eventually, we'll get to the second point, which is the believing. And then, third, the cause. So this evening, there's enough here said about the offended, that that's going to take up our time this evening. So we deal with the, the response to Jesus of the offended. Verse 60 opens with this large group of Jesus' disciples expre- expressing their offense with Jesus. They are responding to what Jesus has just said when they declare, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? What has Jesus just said, he has just given his discourse about being the bread of life. He has insisted that he is the bread come down from heaven to give life to the world. He has called upon his listeners to believe in him and has described faith in him as feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood. And as many of his disciples heard these things, they were offended. The wording they use is to say that Jesus' words are hard. This is a hard saying. The word in the Greek here is not a word that means hard to understand. By the way, what these disciples literally said in the Greek was hard is this word. We actually have the word there, logos, the name given to Jesus back in chapter 1, referring to Jesus as the logos, the word that was with God and that was God, and who as the word is the creator and revealer of truth. The son who uniquely reveals God by becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And When they ask, who can listen to it? We don't know for sure what the antecedent is to the pronoun there, which means that the translation could just as easily be, who can listen to him? And the point is that whether they realize it or not, their issue is ultimately with Jesus and not just with his words. We can't really separate the two which is part of the point of him being the word. But to get back to the main point, they are not saying that Jesus is hard to understand. The word they use indicates that they don't like what he's saying and probably indicates that they don't like the tone in which he has spoken to them. For this word translated as hard means violent, harsh, stern, stiff, stubborn, and unyielding. In reference to people, it means people who won't budge or bend or submit. In reference to spoken words, it means hard and bitter things that are spoken roughly. This is their perspective concerning what Jesus has just said. And if I could paraphrase and summarize their response to Jesus, they think that he has spoken to them in an unloving, harsh way, as someone very opinionated and authoritative, and they do not like it. They don't like being told what to do in such an intolerant and confront- in a confrontative way. And the problem is not unique to that day. In our day, relativism and tolerance are touted as virtues. Anybody who claims to have truth and calls others to recognize that truth and to submit to that truth, anyone who does that is considered a harsh bully. Especially when it comes to salvation, what people want are soft words. I tell them their sin problem is really not all that bad, that God is a forgiving God, and that really if you just do your best to honor God and, and, and do your best to live a moral life, you will be forgiven and blessed. And consequently, any and all religions are said to have value and to lead to heaven. And over against that, what is not appreciated are Christians like us who insist that Jesus Christ is the only way and that without faith in him to give you righteousness, there can only be for you a future of judgment. I think it's true that we live in a day when relativism and intolerance are more openly endorsed than in the past, and yet there is nothing new under the sun. The problem that Jesus is facing in our text is a large group of people who were inclined to follow Jesus, but in the end find him too narrow and dogmatic. They don't like being told that salvation requires faith in him. And for one thing, they're interested in an earthly king who can give them earthly things, who can give them literally earthly bread. That's what they want. They're willing to follow Jesus if he will use his power to deliver them from Roman oppression and feed them. That's that's really what it's about. But he's not going to budge. He's not going to give them what they want. They don't like the fact that he keeps directing their attention away from their earthly and physical desires, pointing them to the greater spiritual realities of eternal life with him. They don't like his choice of words. To eat his flesh and drink his blood sounds harsh, it sounds violent, because all they can think about is literal, physical flesh and blood. And furthermore, when they have raised questions about the meaning of this, Jesus has not backed down, but has stubbornly insisted that unless they eat his flesh and drink his blood, they have no life. He has made it abundantly clear that there is only one way to have life, and that is through him. He's also insisted in a rather insensitive way, as many would view it, that they are not autonomous in deciding when and how they will be saved. Jesus has made clear that God is sovereign in our salvation. God the Father decides who he will save, and the result is that when he decides to save someone, that person is given to Jesus and comes to Jesus. And Jesus has insisted that he and the Father work together as one in the salvation of sinners, that all those who have been taught by God will put their faith in him, that is in Jesus. In other words, to know God and to have a covenantal saving relationship with God requires a relationship with Jesus Christ, his son. Well, that sounds dogmatic and stiff. But Jesus is clear, if you aren't on good terms with him, you are not on good terms with God. Jesus has boldly claimed to be greater than Moses and to be the way that God gives us eternal life, which mean, would mean, and this would be especially troublesome for many in Jesus' day, this would mean that salvation through the law of Moses is invalid. This would mean that unless a person looks to Jesus with faith, his claim to know God is invalid. And Jesus has made it clear he's not going to budge from his insistence that he is to be trusted for eternal life and that trusting in him is the only way that God saves his people. This is too hard for them to accept, and so there they are, grumbling. And as you think of the rocky soil hearers who reject the word of God when it involves tribulation and persecution, don't think of only pressures coming from the outside. Actually, the word persecution refers to those kinds of pressures, but there's also tribulation. There's tribulation of the soul as the sinner wrestles with what Jesus' words mean for his life. And this word tribulation that Jesus uses in the parable refers actually to internal pressure that causes someone to feel confined and restricted. And in the case of the disciples, they don't like the confining feeling of Jesus' words telling them that unless they trust in Jesus, they have no eternal life. They don't want to feel this pressure of there being no other option but to trust in Christ for salvation. They're like those of today who are convinced they know God, but they don't know Christ. And that they have salvation, but they don't know Christ. And they think that they can be saved through their own works and religious activities. And this tribulation is going on because of this spiritual battle that is going on in the heart over who will be sovereign and who has the truth. Is it myself Or is it Christ? And the problem is that for many, they can't accept the implications of what Jesus says. And Jesus will not budge in his message that sinners need him and that there is nothing they can do to save themselves. For many, this is just too harsh and they end up rejecting the word. And so there is this inner tribulation. And in response to that, Jesus asks his disciples, do you take offense at this? And what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So he asked them about being offended. And this word in the Greek, it's where we get the word "scandalize," And originally it was a word related to ensnaring a bird. And the meth- method was to bait a stick, to entice a bird into a trap where it would get caught. And so the word can mean to entice someone into sin. When people are enticed into sin... Who once professed faith and who once walked in a godly way, they are said to fall away. And so the word for offend can mean to fall away. Uh, When someone gets their foot entangled in a trap, they feel annoyed, and so the word can mean feeling displeasure, even to the point of being mad. But in the context of the root meaning of this word, the person's offense is related to sin. Can it can be that he He uh, thinks he's being wrongly accused of sin, or he doesn't want to hear that he is sinning. He feels trapped because he can't defend himself against the accusation of sin. He thinks he's being wrongly accused of sin, or he doesn't want to hear that he's sinning. He feels trapped because he can't defend himself against these things. His conscience tells him the accuser is right, and the accuser won't back down, but the accused doesn't want to change rather than repent, he chooses to be offended. And so the Greek word has a number of nuances. As I said, it can mean to cause someone to sin, even to fall away. To be offended could mean that someone has been enticed and become trapped in a sin. It could mean someone feels trapped by an accuser. We wonder which of these nuances is applicable here in Jesus' question. The ESV words Jesus' question, do you take offense at this? But I came across a commentator who indicated that really the question might be more like this. Um, does Does this, that is what I have been saying, ensnare you? Perhaps that's what Jesus is saying. Do my words ensnare you? Has my sermon led you to sin? Have I said or done something that has caused you to fall away from the truth and from godliness so that you have become ensnared in sin? Am I a false teacher, in other words, who has said untrue things? To ask this would be to force them to decide, is Jesus a false teacher? Is he leading people into sin? And does this understanding, we need to evaluate, does this understanding of Jesus' question fit with what he goes on to say? He then adds in verse 62, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So let's assume for a moment that they think Jesus is a false teacher. Well, what will they think if they... Were to see him ascend into heaven, would it not prove that he came from heaven? Would it not convince them to believe in him? And based on what Jesus goes on to say, he answers his own question by saying that even them witnessing his ascension would not change anything. And this is because faith has never been a matter of human reason and human decision, but of the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit changing hearts. So the interpretation that Jesus, that has Jesus asking if he has ensnared them, it's possible. It does fit with the flow of the text, and yet I would suggest a different nuance, which is taken up by the ESV. I think it has it right when it asks um, about their being offended or displeased with Jesus. He's essentially asking them, are you displeased? Are you upset? Are you offended over what I've said? And if we keep in mind the root meaning of the word for offense, Jesus is asking them specifically if they are offended because of how he has accused them of sin. The truth is Jesus has cornered them and they feel trapped. And the feeling of being trapped would be because of a feeling of inadequacy in trying to defend their rejection of him. This is because Jesus has given them really no other option but to believe in him. Jesus' miracles including the one that's just taken place, the feeding of the 5,000 men plus women and children, probably 15,000 people, that miracle has left a very clear message that he is God. Jesus has taught that he is one with God. And thus, to reject him is to reject God, while to believe in God and to learn from God is synonymous with believing in him and learning from him, which means that he has left his audience with the option of believing in him or disobeying God. This would make Jesus' question one that I don't think anyone was going to be particularly inclined to answer. Because if they were to say, yes, I am offended, they would be admitting that they are mad over what Jesus has said. That would prove that Jesus has indeed hit some raw nerves. And the offense is because they're not really willing to come clean. They're not really willing to just straight out say that they disagree with his claims. They're not willing to challenge what he says about himself and his relationship to God. They only grumble in the shadows. But the reality, and Jesus knows it, um, because as God, he knows their hearts, is that they can't refute what Jesus says, but they also will not accept it. And so they are trapped in their offense of Jesus, and Jesus knows it. And what Jesus asks next is based on the assumption that they are offended. What would they say, he asks, if they were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And the flow of thought goes like this. You are offended because I have called you to do what you know you should do but won't do. To believe in me, you would have to admit that you need me to give you eternal life. While to not believe in me is to say that God will give you eternal life without me, even though my miracles tell you I'm God. And you are frustrated because the truth hurts. And you don't like your options, but if you feel dislike for me because of the pressure to believe in me from my miracles and my words, how are you going to react when you see me actually ascend into the glories of heaven? Well, you are going to really feel trapped and pressured into believing in me as there will be even less excuse for not believing. For there will be no escaping from the evidence that Jesus has come from heaven Now, Jesus doesn't straight out answer his own question about what they will say or do in response to seeing him ascend, but the implied answer is that even if they see him ascend, they are not going to believe in him. And we know this is the implied answer because in the next verses through verse 65, Jesus explains why, even if they actually were to see Jesus ascending up into heaven, they would not believe. It's basically because. No one who remains offended by Christ is going to believe in him. And the problem is not a lack of evidence. The problem is that true faith in Christ is a willing belief in Christ, but willing belief in Christ is impossible for natural unregenerate sinners. The matter is stated in black and white terms there in verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. When it comes to giving life to the creature physically and spiritually, only the spirit can give life. The flesh can only receive life from the spirit. Now, it's possible that Jesus means here his flesh, and that would mean he's correcting those who think that he has been advocating literally eating his flesh as a way to give life to the soul. His literal flesh will be broken. His blood shed on the cross as a way to earn eternal life. But that life is received by faith, It's applied to the heart only by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus adds, by way of explanation, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. J.C. Ryle says of these words, By this he signifies that his words and teachings, applied to the heart by the Holy Spirit, are the true means of producing spiritual influence and conveying, conveying spiritual life. By words, thoughts are aroused. By words, minds, and conscience are stirred. And Christ's words especially are spirit-stirring and life-giving, quote. And so Jesus is saying his words are spiritual. They're not to be understood literally. They are life-giving only when their spiritual intent is understood. And when Jesus says his words are life, he means they are an instrument by which God gives life. When he says his words then are spirit in a similar way, he means his words are an instrument by which, he gives his, by which God gives a spirit to regenerate the dead sinner. And you know that you don't have life, and you don't have the spirit, if you are offended by Jesus' words. And the evidence for this reality is the unbelief of men that Jesus highlights in verse 64. He says, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. There are those there in front of him who do not believe. Jesus knows fully who they are. He even knew that Judas didn't truly believe in him and would betray him. And Jesus' point is not to use the necessary work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration as an excuse for man's unbelief. But rather the point is that man's sin And man's rebellion, his spiritual deadness, which makes him offended at Christ, account for his inability to believe. Jesus has told them the truth. He has called them to faith in him as the only way to have eternal life. He has spoken words through which the Holy Spirit is able to work and give life to sinners, but these sinners are offended at Jesus' words. They think that they have the spiritual ability to discern truth, and to give themselves life. Well, the truth is that it is the Spirit who gives life. And Jesus sums up the situation with this. They thought they've already heard hard words. Here's another hard word. He's repeating himself, but in this context, an especially hard, humbling, offensive word. The truth of verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Well, how is a sinner to know? How are you you or I to know if such grace has been granted? Well, have you stopped being offended at Christ? Are you willing to hear that you are a sinner and that only he can help you? Do you want what Christ offers, namely righteousness and eternal life? And are you willing to receive them on his terms? If and when you don't understand his words, do you want to truly know what they mean? And do you humbly ask for help and understanding, or do you come up with excuses not to believe? Christ's words are spirit and life, and those who have been given life by the Spirit receive his words, and they go to him. My prayer is that everyone here has gone to Jesus Christ for righteousness, and knows what it is to feed on Christ and to find him satisfying your soul with forgiveness, a clear conscience, and the hope of eternal life. Because that would mean then that you are fertile soil listeners, no longer offended by Jesus' words. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, what a sad state of reality it is that apart from your spirit, we would all be offended at your words. We would find them hard, unacceptable. We would find excuses to not believe, to turn from the truth, but Father, we thank you for the work of your Spirit. Thank you that your words through the Spirit are words of life as they come to us and remove the offense. Lord, we pray that if there are any here this evening who are offended by the words of Christ, who find these words harsh and unacceptable, that Father, you would remove this offense. We pray that all of us would submit to Christ, submit to his words, recognizing that in him, and him alone, is eternal life. We pray that we would receive him by faith, that we would recognize that we cannot save ourselves, and that we have no ability of ourselves to properly discern spiritual things. So, Father, we need you at every step of the way, and we pray that we would humbly acknowledge that apart from you, apart from your grace, we would have no hope of eternal life, that apart from you, we would remain offended, And we would remain, therefore, under judgment. So, Father, we look to you and we're thankful for the grace that you extend. Uh, For, Father, we are thankful that there are people here. We are thankful that there are many people throughout the world who have had these barriers against Christ removed by your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.